1: Hello. Welcome to New Books and Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Zachary Ardern, your host. Today, I'll be interviewing Professor Geraint Lewis and Dr. Luke Barnes about their book, A Fortunate Universe, published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome, uh, Geraint and Luke. Hello. Uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, Thanks for having me So to start with, I wonder if perhaps uh, you, Geraint, could tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into researching cosmology? And um, when did you first realize that you wanted to be a cosmologist?
2: Oh, good question. Um, I I sort of fell into the role more than anything. Um, I came into cosmology uh, through a route that many cosmologists do, in that I always had an interest in science and eventually discovered that I quite enjoyed uh, science and mathematics. So I did physics and astronomy when I was an undergrad at university, but always figured I would go off and do a real job. But um, as I went through my undergrad years, I just discovered that I, I could really do the astronomy side of things. And so I thought I may as well continue into a PhD in astronomy at the University of Cambridge. Um, and it just kept going and I find myself now I'm a professor of astrophysics here at the University of Sydney and my research has always sort of been interested in trying to understand the dark side of the universe, sort of the dark matter and now we know dark energy that makes up the dominant sort of components of the universe and it's, um,
1: it's been an area of research I've really enjoyed. That's great and a question for Luke, uh, how did you two come to write this book together?
0: Well, I think Geraint had had plans for writing a book for some time. Um, And as, you know, you were going back and forth with publishers and that sort of thing, um, I started at Sydney University as a a postdoc. Before that, I'd been here for my undergrad um, working with Geraint amongst other people on on various things. So when I came back, I'd done some research and a review paper on this thing called the fine-tuning of the universe for life. And um, after I gave a talk on that, we had a chat about this. Garant wanted to write a book, and I knew
1: this subject fairly well. And, um, yeah, we we decided to write the book together. So the book's been out for um, a couple of years now, and I'm curious, what has the response to the book been like?
0: Well, the most satisfying thing is that no one's really taken apart the technical details, which is always the stuff that you're you're stressing about when you're writing when you're writing this kind of thing. A, a typical response has has been that you know people find the first bit of the book, which is basically about the science of fine tuning, they find that uh, fairly fascinating. Hopefully, by the end, I think most people sort of see the problem to be solved. And then the last part of the book is just uh, it's it written as the form of a conversation between Geraint and myself about what we think all of this means. And people tend to tend to you know not particularly take one side or the other or you know they they just join the conversation, which is kind of exactly what we wanted. We, you know, if people disagree with the last part of the book, the last chapter, then that's fine. That's exactly why we wrote it.
1: Yeah.
2: And uh, I should point out we've had some very nice feedback from some of the key people in the research. Side of understanding fine-tuning fine-tuning both the philosophical and the physics side. So so that that's been very good just to get some um some very nice peer comments.
1: And I understand it's even been translated into Chinese. How did that come about?
0: <laughs> well, there's an awful lot of this which is still a mystery to us. But basically, when we sign the contract, all of that stuff was in still in the hands of our publisher. So they then take it around to book fairs, and there are companies who will if they Something will do well in, say, the Chinese market. They will buy the rights from from our publisher, Cambridge University Press, to produce the that the the translation. And so we get an email that says we're we're having it translated into Chinese, and that's as much as we're told. And then we have a, a pause of about it was about a year, wasn't it? Yes. And then and and then someone sends us a link to hey, this thing's on Amazon already. Yes. And we followed up, and and you know our our copy of the Chinese version was in the mail, but that's. We have very little to do with that. The, uh, the, the other language that we've had that email sent about is actually Arabic. So we haven't got the, the, the book version back yet.
1: We're still in that waiting period. It may or may not actually happen. Great. So let's uh, delve into the contents of the book a little bit. And one of my questions is what would you say the main differences between your book and the, the other books that were already out there on fine-tuning are?
2: well um th- there aren't that many books on this particular topic there's there, there are several out there um uh, it, it it has a long history it has a it appears in a number of different books i think one of the key things that that we do is we sort of um we do s- slice the problem up and and take a look at it in particular parts and and focus on uh, especially the scientific aspects, and asking this question of what different universes would be like if we change various aspects of the laws of physics, so we approach it from a um, from a, a viewpoint that irrespective of what you might consider the solution to be, the problem is a scientific problem. We do have issues with this universe that we need to understand. We also, um, we, when we set out, we were very careful that we didn't want to present one side or the other because books are often, uh, that this is the scientific solution, that's all there is, or this is the theological solution, that's all there is. And we wanted to get to the point and just say, that uh, what the reader should take away is that there is this scientific problem and nobody has the solution. Nobody can say one way or the other that this is definitely the solution to the problem. So we said we wanted to make sure that we we didn't um, come at it from a particular angle. We want to present the, the problem and
1: talk about the potential solutions. So one of the things I I really like about the book is the uh, definitions and the clarity. So could you briefly give me um, a definition of what is fine-tuning anyway, and then we can talk a little bit about why it's interesting and why it's controversial.
0: So to avoid the the definition where fine-tuning turns out to be controversial, the the thing that it doesn't mean is that the universe was made by a fine-tuner. Whether that's true or not, that's not what the, the phrase fine-tuning means. It, it, it has meaning. It's a bit of physics jargon, actually. Uh, it's, it, 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 you have in mind the, the old school radio where you've got a dial there. But basically what's going on there is when you, as a theoretical physicist, you have to make some sort of model of the world, okay, and you do that in, in sort of mathematical terms. It's a mathematical model. And you want to know whether your model matches some feature about the world. But you want to know a bit more than that. You, you want it to do it in a natural way, in a way that's not um, it's not fine-tuned, it's not jerry-read, it's not ad hoc. You don't have to put in very specific, very uh, sort of suspiciously precise assumptions into your model. So one of the things you do is if you've got, say, part of that model might be a parameter, like a number, Okay, that, that represents something. Um, one of the things you might do, as well as seeing which number, if this model were true, would be the sort of correct one, say it was it was something like how heavy is an electron? So you can go and measure that number. But another thing you might do is just to say, all right, what if that number had been different? What would happen in that case? So this is a general thing that you do as a physicist with your models. You're just testing to see whether they explain things naturally or they explain things in a sort of contrived way. That's fine-tuning in general. In particular, we found that uh, physicists have found that fine-tuning, this kind of fine-tuning, exists in the laws of nature as we know them, the deepest laws that we have, in relation to life, and in particular in relation to the complexity that life requires. So if you take the fundamental properties of our universe, how heavy is an electron, how fast does the universe expand at the beginning roughly, things like that, and say, all right, well, what would would have been the case if we changed these numbers? Mathematically, the universe is fine. If you're a theoretical physicist, you can do all the prediction and solving equations that you'd love to do. But then when you look at the outcome, you notice that actually you've lost – uh, a massive uh, uh, in often cases you 've lost a massive part of the complexity that 's possible in our universe, so you know matter won 't actually form into the sort of complex things that we 're made out of, and that 's the fine tuning of the universe for life
1: so could you maybe uh, expand a bit on why is this um, interesting and why does it uh, become so controversial
2: well well personally, I think it 's interesting because um It points to something deeper than the laws of physics as we currently understand them, right? So we we describe the the way the universe works in a set of mathematical laws which we've been uncovering for hundreds of years. And we have a pretty good description of the universe we see around us and we think we can make accurate predictions into the future. Um, But nothing in those laws tell us why those laws are the way they are. Um, the, The laws of physics are uh, somehow written into the universe, but not why they were written in the form they are. So t- to it, to answer the question of why our universe is the way it is, we've got to go larger. We have to try and understand our physics in terms of something bigger. And the, this goes into the kind of potential solutions which are beyond the laws of physics as we understand them in our universe. So uh, it's pointed to something deep, and something interesting. At the moment, though, you know, people argue quite a bit about exactly
1: what it's pointing to. So you're both physicists, and um, sometimes people think that this is a problem perhaps purely for philosophy. Is there a place for philosophers in this conversation? And if so, what do you think that place is?
0: I think there is. Um, One of the reasons for that is, you know, I've hung out with philosophers quite a bit, and one of the things that philosophers are quite good at uh, especially sort of in, in what's called the analytic tradition, is just really breaking down the, the logic uh, uh, of any particular argument. And uh, one of the things about fine-tuning is there's an awful lot of things that people think about it and ways people respond to it. It gives a, a very different first impression to a lot of different people. And one of the things that I've seen philosophers do quite well is just sort of break down into steps like you know let's let's think try and break things up let's try and think about the logic of what's going on here uh beyond that i think um i think there's a place for i mean philosophers of science the 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 best ones out there today really are just physicists you know, they are scientists who are just asking philosophical questions. So they have training in both of those kind of fields, the, the very best ones. I'm thinking here of a David Albert, who who did a physics PhD, who did a postdoc with you know, a famous quantum physicist, Aharonov, and is now, is now attacking philosophical kinds of questions with his philosophical training as well. I think that sort of approach, uh, I mean, certainly there are some pretty dreadful articles on fine-tuning by philosophers. I don't want to name names, but you can find my blog and they're on there, uh, where they just haven't understood the physics of the situation. They just haven't understood what the physicists are trying to say. But there are some pretty aw- awful ones by physicists as well who have not done the hard work of trying to analyse what's actually being said here. So I think it, it, it kind of takes both. There is there is equal opportunity
1: for... Um, contributions and complete dross on both sides. So let's get into the science a little bit. This uh, discussion has um, a history of, I guess, at least a few decades. Could you mention a couple of uh, cases of fine-tuning which were discovered early?
2: Well, one of the classic ones um, is to do with... uh, The the dark energy component of the universe. So what what we know is that um, way back in the early uh, 1900s, when Einstein had developed his general theory of relativity, he developed the cosmological model. So there was him and there were several other prominent researchers. And of course, Einstein, being a man of his time, thought the universe was static and unchanging. And that didn't seem to be a natural solution to his equations. So he added this thing called the cosmological constant, which acts a bit like an anti-gravity and can give you a static and unchanging universe, uh, which he then sort of abandoned once it was clear from work by people like uh, Hubble that we live in an expanded universe. And so the entire question of this cosmological constant disappeared uh, in terms of a, a realistic component of the universe. But it was always there mathematically possible to have this component in the equations, and there was a famous uh, sort of uh, bit of work by Steve Weinberg where he he asked himself the question of, well, how big could this component be in our universe, um, given the fact that we are here, right? So, the this anti gravity drives material in the universe away from uh, other matter faster and faster. So, if there is too much of this cosmological constant term, the universe would have been born and then rapidly thinned out such that there was no way that uh, gas could ever come together to form stars and and form galaxies and eventually the complexity that we need for us to be here. So based on us actually uh, sort of uh, existing in the universe, um, Weinberg came up with limits on how much of this dark energy cosmological constant we could have in the universe. And then um, at this theoretical study was done in the nineteen eighties mm-hmm. um, and then by the nineteen nineties, our observations indicated that um we did actually have a non zero amount of dark energy in the universe, and when it was measured uh it was found that the amount that was there was vastly smaller than the theoretical expectations you get from. Quantum field theory, but sort of agreed with the numbers that um, that Weinberg had come up with based on the fact that we are here. So you know, w- we we don't know why we have this big mismatch between theory and observation in our universe. But if we didn't, then the the natural amount of uh, of this cosmological constant would have wiped out any prospect of there being sort of complexity and life in the universe. So there was a prediction from from Weinberg that the amount of dark energy must be fine-tuned to be less than a certain value for complexity to be in the universe and
1: for us to be here. So I know you've given uh, talks in a wide variety of contexts, and for a popular audience, what would be your go-to example of fine-tuning which you found non-physicists can best understand?
0: My go-to one, the first one I like is... You start with just the basic Lego blocks of the universe, the stuff that according to the standard model of particle physics, right, if you, you break things in the universe apart into the smallest pieces, the smallest bits we've found so far for the ordinary matter we see around us are called the up quark, the down quark and the electron. Right? Right. So we're, a, we're, a, we're all made of three Lego bricks. And one of the basic fundamental properties of this particle of these particles is just how much they weigh if you could get a really really small scale and stick an electron on it you would get a very small number but we know what that number is and so i find that's you know what's the basic stuff of the universe and how much does each of those pieces weigh now when i call that number fundamental what i mean is that there's no theory in physics which tells us what that number is supposed to be but they those numbers appear in equations but they are input into the equations they don't come out of the equations so we just have to measure it and stick it in. We don't get to predict those numbers. But once you measure it and stick it in, the theory works quite nicely. All right, so then you can just ask the question, there's those numbers, what if we change them? And you might think because this is just the mass of, of, of the stuff that we're made out of, all you do is you make heavier and lighter atoms and such. And But that's not, not quite the case because... Uh, In the universe, whenever you want a process to happen, you need to be able to pay for it with energy. And because Einstein shows E equals MC squared, the masses of those fundamental particles come into the sort of interactions that happen in the universe. They're part of the budget. And so you actually change what things can and can't happen in the universe. And so actually very small changes in the masses of the fundamental particles, and by small I mean relative to what could have been the case in uh the equations as we know them you stop them from being able to stick to each other and at that point instead of the entire periodic table of fundamental of of three elements which you can make into molecules and everything else we see around us you just have protons and electrons and that's all the universe ever makes the most complex molecule the universe ever makes is is the hydrogen molecule, which is two hydrogen atoms stuck together, and that's it. So this is my go-to example because it's such a drastic change in the universe. The difference between something will stick to something else and nothing will stick to anything is obviously the kind of change where, you know, fundamentally, if you want to make something complex like a person, you'd better be able to stick atoms to other atoms. And If you can't do that, you go nowhere. And it turns out, that actually only a very small change to these numbers, these masses of the fundamental particles,
1: is required in order to make that happen. So there are, of course, um, a number of objections to the, air, uh, to the idea of fine-tuning, even um, just scientifically, many of which you discuss in your book. Um, chapter 7 is helpfully called A Dozen or So Reactions to Fine-Tuning. One of these, I guess, is can you introduce any claims of fine-tuning which initially seemed plausible uh, but which have dissolved with further research? Yeah so I actually wrote a paper on on one such case. Um
0: so if you go back to even very early fine tuning literature in the 70s there's an article by Freeman Dyson uh who's a very famous physicist and he, he, the the argument went as follows in our universe the fundamental thing you can make out of quarks so when you get the lego pieces the first thing you make out of quarks is the proton and the neutron okay We've got those. What can we do next? Well, we can stick a proton to a neutron. Okay, that will work. We can stick protons and neutrons together. What we can't do is stick a proton to a proton or actually, for completeness' sake. We can't stick a neutron to a neutron either. But the important one is two protons won't stick. That system will be unstable. It will contain within itself enough energy for it to rip itself apart. So even if you could get them to stick, they would almost immediately fall apart. And by immediately, I mean like 10 to the minus 23 seconds or something ridiculous. And so Dyson says, all right, well, what if that wasn't the case? What if two protons could stick together? And he tries to say, all right, well, that process would happen very, very quickly in the sun. At the moment in the sun, the reaction relies is, is actually very slow because you can't stick two protons together. You've got to burn a proton because the sun is fundamentally made of protons, hydrogen. You've got to do something a bit more tricky. You've got to involve the weak force. It's a lot slower. Um, and so uh, uh, Dyson says, well, if you could just stick two protons together, stars would all be explosive. And that claim, um, well, there's, there is a claim in that, neighborhood which is true and the the claim the correct claim is if in the sun right now you snapped your fingers and all of the protons were able to stick together into what's called the diproton just two protons stuck together uh, the sun would be able to burn all of its nuclear fuel in about one second which would be pretty disastrous right instead of the the couple of billion years it's got left out so you would blow up the sun what we tried, what I tried to uh, look at in my paper was, uh, as, as some people had suspected but no one had actually shown, is, well, maybe what will happen in that universe is rather than just you make a star and it all blows up, maybe you'll make stars which aren't as dense, whose cores aren't quite as hot, and maybe that will all be fine. And so that's, that's an open question. Maybe you, the, the cores of the stars are so cold that they aren't stable or maybe the whole thing collapses. But actually what we found was using a fairly simple model was that you could actually make pretty good, pretty stars that are pretty similar to our universe. Uh, all you've got to do is just make the cores of these stars less dense and less hot and because actually these, these processes are very sensitive to temperature. You end up with stars that aren't actually that different to ours. So what was called the diproton disaster, which was in Dyson, and then was in uh, Barrow and Tipler's book in the 1980s, it was widely discussed. Um, although some people had suspected, you know, there, there was sort of a couple of voices saying maybe this one doesn't work. So we actually found that this paper showed that actually those stars are fine. There is no diproton disaster. So there are a couple of examples like that, and and what was wrong in those examples was that they asked the question wrong. They didn't say, what would happen in a universe in which uh, this, ha- this is fundamental physics? So, for example, what would happen in a universe in which two protons could stick together? That's the right question to ask. They didn't ask that question. They asked the question, what if you took our universe and then all of a sudden changed it so that protons could stick together? And that's the wrong question. That's not the fine-tuning question. We want to look at complete other, other ways the universe could have been, not the universe which starts off like ours and then half over just sort of switches over that's one case there's only a handful there aren't many others like that to be honest having looked through all the literature there have been various ones that have gone sort of up and down, there's some big, very interesting work actually stars, most of them are about stars stars have turned out to be a bit more robust than we thought there's been some great work by Fred Adams and Evan Groves and their collaborators just looking at stars and actually there's some some ways you could make stars which we had not quite thought of there's, there's some ways around some of the traditional fine tuning ones But um, so one of the reasons why I present the the periodic table falling apart case is just because it's one that's pretty rock solid. Uh,
2: I just want to add a little comment there is that um, there's uh, there's still more work to do in this particular area. I mean, stars are complicated beasts from woe to go from the – the initial steps of forming stars in gas clouds, all the way through their stellar life. So, um, ourselves and uh, and uh, Fred Adams and his collaborators are still working on building this alternative physics into these more complicated models, so we can actually look at the entire lifetime of stars in alternative universes. So, mm-hmm. it, it's not all done and dusted. But as as Luke mentioned, stars are more robust because they they are. Um, They're feedback mechanisms. They they have self-regulatory sort of actions in them. So um, we'll have to wait and see exactly
1: just how big a problem this really is. So there's a lot of in-principle objections as well. There's a few, and some of these revolve around difficulties with the concept of probability that's involved. For instance, the idea of a principle of indifference. Do you have any comments on... Uh, whether you think that the concepts of probability are problematic. Is that a legitimate way to critique uh, fine-tuning?
0: So I have a paper on this as well. This is my one philosophy paper trying to attack this. We outline this in the book a little bit. I think the main thing for me is uh, I can find within physics, as it stands at the moment, and in particular within Bayesian, what are called Bayesian approaches to probability theory. It's a particular approach to probabilities, which is, is growing very quickly in, in, in popularity in the sciences for good reason, I think. Uh, so when physicists go and test their models as they exist now, as we do that in the Bayesian way, I find within that process all the ingredients I need to set up the fine-tuning problem. I can set up the problem in all that ways. Fine-tuning will look surprising or that will, will be the case. There is an appeal to something like the principle of indifference, but I think that's a legitimate appeal. Um, it, it's the sort of appeal if you, you're trying to put some sort of flesh on the bones of, uh, I think this theory applies to the universe, but I don't know what the numbers in the theory are. So, for example, I have an equation that describes electrons, but I don't from the equation know the mass of electrons. That is true, and that is that is a statement which needs to sort of be put in a mathematical form for us to test the theory at all, and I think we can do that. So it's it's there are – I don't think it's unsolvable. There are some tricky little issues there, but I, I think at the end of the day what I argue for in this paper in particular is just – We've got the resources we need. The sort of
1: problems we find in fine-tuning are the same sort of problems we find testing theories in physics. So one of the uh, really interesting ideas is uh, relating to fine-tuning and the multiverse is the idea of a Boltzmann observer. Uh, could you comment, uh, one or both of you, on, on a Boltzmann observer and, and its connection to multiverse theories?
2: Oh yes, yeah this is one that uh, always leads to people basically I I don't know if they, it freaks them out a little bit. <laughs> so you know let's just take our universe as it as it stands right so uh, as 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 far as we understand with our universe we have an infinite future ahead of us. Um but we um In terms of stars and life in the universe, there's probably a finite amount of time over which we can have stars and complexity that could support life. But there's this infinite future ahead of us uh, in which uh, quantum mechanics is still going to continue to operate. And on these immense time scales, you will get fluctuations in the universe, fluctuations of energy that basically can form um, and and in, in the extreme, the idea here is these fluctuations will form a, a conscious brain that have, that out of nothing pops this brain that has uh, entire memories and understanding of of a person here on Earth. And and so, given that we have this infinite amount of time in the future, and there's uh, infinite amount of space, and there's infinite possibilities for these things to pop out of uh, out of nothing and into existence. That um, if you just do the back of the envelope kind of Numbers, then what you'd find is that given that we only have a finite amount of time for this sort of physical life, that the most probable kind of life there would be in a, in a universe like our own, or even in the multiverse, which doesn't have any complexity at all, are these Boltzmann brains. Uh, and so these Boltzmann brains pop into existence. And uh, the, the question that we should be asking is, is whether or not we are Boltzmann brains, if we have. Myself, am I a Boltzmann brain that has popped into existence into an otherwise empty universe, and I will pop out of existence in a tiny fraction of a second? So th- this notion of um, uh, that we've got all this empty space uh, spread through the multiverse over an infinite amount of time, it could be filled with these these life forms that essentially... Um, life, life form... These Boltzmann brains that have popped into existence with this notion that they are living physical beings. I'll jump in. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, it's a it's a tough one to think through. So here's here's one way to to try and think through what's the problem here. So um, think of just we've got our observations of the world around us, and think of that as just there's there's information stored in my brain. So there's a particular configuration of matter in my head that's going on okay and now think all right so if suppose you had a theory of the universe as a whole okay i mean if you're if you're if you've got cosmology if you're doing cosmology you're supposed that your models are supposed to be the whole universe right the whole kit and caboodle all of it and so what you might want to ask yourself is okay within some theoretical model okay how uh, the sort of brain that's organized like mine where will it turn up most where is it most likely to turn up now what we hope that the answer to that is it'll turn up on a planet around a star after you know a, an evolutionary history basically we want it to turn up in the scenario in which we think that we actually are so that that actually all my memories all my stored memories are actually true memories right when i remember what i did yesterday it's because that it actually happened yesterday but here's the problem. It could be the case that if you have a big enough and ugly enough and long-lived enough universe, that there could be another way to make my brain. There could be a certain probability that it just turns up in almost empty space given a certain amount of time. And the problem comes in a theory, and this is the problem with a the theory, in which, you know, you give it enough time, there will be more copies of my brain in that pop up in empty space than that exist on planets and so like obviously within the first you know what are we 15 billion years of the universe the most likely places on a planet but if you look out into the distant future but like all those ridiculously long time scale problem uh, processes do all of their hard work uh if any if you ask the question but given the state of my brain, where is it most likely to be? If your theory, and remember, you've got your theory, it's supposed to predict everything. If the, the, the answer your theory gives back is probably all of your memories are false, you are just a brain in empty space thinking that you're sitting in a room in Sydney, then your theory has got a real problem. I mean, there is the philosophical am I a brain and a that kind of problem, and that's that. this is kind of one version of that. But the other part of this is... Yes, you know you've you've got to take your model seriously. If you think you can do cosmology, you've got to you've got to really pull out all of the predictions of your model. And one of those predictions might be, hey, guess what? <laughs> I predict that all your memories are false, and then you've got a real problem with your model. I, I would absolutely say this
2: problem has not been resolved. No, no, and Luke does not know that he actually is a physical <laughs> brain sitting in a room in Sydney, and he could be a Boltzmann brain sitting in an empty universe in the far future. It's also not—it's not solved in that. Sense. It's also not solved in the:
0: Do we have new theories of a the multiverse that avoid the Boltzmann brain problem? Yeah, that's not entirely clear either. Um, it, it, it's not—it's especially—it's not it's, clear especially whether you've got to fine-tune a multiverse in order to avoid the, bulk of the brain problem. So this is very much
1: an open problem. As an evolutionary biologist, uh, many of my colleagues will uh, raise an objection that you term uh, evolution will find a way. Can you briefly explain what you would say in, in response to this objection?
2: Well, one of the comments we often get is, is, you know, how do you know what life would be like in another universe, right? I mean, um, it, you might have a different sort of periodic table. You might have different strengths of forces, but there, there might be just enough stuff there to, to make life. And, and the big issue that we have is that um, what is easy to do is make Universes which are either dead and sterile. So, you know, a universe is so empty that, you know, there's one hydrogen atom per observable universe. So I think we could be quite right in saying the chances of life in that universe are pretty slim Mm -hmm. Um, or a universe which is just too simple to have life. So, I mean, basically we're using a very um, straightforward definition of likelihood that you need complexity in the universe such that you can build up molecules or whatever. And um, the the possibility of having life in a universe that is too simple, if you've only got a universe that contains hydrogen atoms and nothing else, and they can't bind together to give you anything more complicated. Evolution is not going to give you a solution, right? You're not going to be able to form life and eventually complex life and intelligent life in a universe which itself is intrinsically too simple for even the you know the most straightforward atoms to
1: join together i wonder if you could explain uh how you conclude the book what's the final section of the book about
0: so the final section of the book is it takes the form of a conversation and there are four ideas that we look at for having in chapter seven sort of uh dealt with some of the responses we don't think are, are, are good enough uh, that don't really deal with the problem. We then look at four that, that have a better chance of dealing dealing with the problem. Um, and there's, there's there's kind of one that we both reject, one that one that Geraint leans towards, one I lean towards, and one of them that we're both sort of looking at with a bit of suspicion. Uh, so the four uh maybe if we just keep doing physics, then... Uh, we will discover that actually the universe had to be this way. We will explain the values of these numbers by some great theoretical breakthrough. Number two, which we've discussed already, is this this idea of a multiverse. Maybe uh, we won the Cosmic Lottery. We got the winning ticket despite the odds just because there's lots of other bits of the universe all buying tickets, all getting different values of these numbers, and sooner or later winning one turns up somewhere. Number three is maybe there's there's some sort of designer of our universe. Maybe uh the reason why it is the way that it is is just because uh the universe achieved something good and, and someone with the ability to make a universe designed it for that um scenario. And and in particular that designer would have to be something not physical and something um that's you know, sort of not beyond fine-tuning worries itself, which is an open question. And, and fourthly, the one where, that we both aren't quite sure what to do with is what if the universe is a simulation? What if, I guess it's like a designer, but it would, it would just be like more, you know, in the next universe up, there's, there's, they've got physics of their own, but we've just, we're on someone's computer somewhere. So the reason why our universe does something interesting is because we were designed that way, but it's just more physics in, in, in one sense or another. And so we, we sort of throw those ideas around for for, for a while to see, to see what we think about those.
2: Yeah, but I said I think the important part for us is that ultimately we didn't, uh, didn't come to a conclusion that one of these must be right and that uh, effectively the, the, the game is still on, right? Okay. There's definitely no single um, absolute solution to the, the
1: problem of fine-tuning, so there's definitely more to be done. So that leads uh, very nicely into my final question. Uh, It's been great to interview you both. And uh, to conclude, I'm interested in what are your future projects? Uh, Do either of you have any other books planned, or would you like to share anything about the direction of your research at the moment?
2: Well, yeah, so we we are putting another book together, um, and uh, hopefully this – this will come to fruition next year. So we have one of the things that we, we often do is give public talks. And at the, Often in public talks, somebody will come up to you and they will have a radical theory about how the universe works. And we have to try and get over the concept of how science works and how you would, what you have to do to get your ideas accepted. And so we've put together a guidebook to overthrow in the universe. So Tentative title is the Cosmic Revolutionary's Handbook. With exactly what the observations of the universe show us, and how uh, modern science explains those, and what an alternative theory would need to do to be to supersede our current ideas, so that book is it's coming together, it should be ready soonish if we get off our uh, <laughs>
0: proverbials proverbials and uh, get get on with it. The other thing that we do is we, we are act- you know we actively research in this area, so uh, I've mentioned papers. We've written before, we've got more papers about stars that we want to write, and in particular, um, earlier this year, we published a paper with some colleagues in Durham and a colleague in Western Australia, which, which took this idea that Geraint was talking about, the fine-tuning of the cosmological constant, uh, you know, if it was too large, then galaxies wouldn't form. And we basically attacked that with the the best tool we have available to us, which are these supercomputer simulations of how galaxies form. So you take a, a computer, you represent the universe with with particles that represent a certain amount of matter in the universe, um, and then you 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 sort of program the computer so that the, the part of, you know that space expands. They feel the gravitational force of each other. They feel pressure forces. They, you know, they glow when they're hot and they form stars when they're very dense and all that stuff. We put that in a supercomputer and we, we we set that off. Lots of people do that to try and explain our universe for the first time. We were doing that to try and say what would happen in these other universes. So we have a paper on that. Um, Uh, that was kind of interesting we 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 showed movies of universes which don't quite work properly and and that is very much an ongoing project so we've got other ideas of other cosmic
1: dials that we want to spin and 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 let a supercomputer tell us what what galaxies would and wouldn't form that all sounds really great and i look forward to this book and to to following more of your papers Uh, so thank you so much for being on the podcast and i hope you have a great day thank you very much thank you And thank you listeners, we've just been hearing from our guests, Professor Geraint Lewis and Dr. Luke Barnes, about their book published with Cambridge University Press, A Fortunate Universe, Life in a Finely Tuned Cosmos.